there's nothing. There's no. There's no. There's no foreplay with the bar. It's just yeah. instant gr- gratification or misery. Hello and welcome back to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. Uh, we have had a utter whirlwind of just fantastic football over the last couple of days. Uh, I know, Will, you really enjoyed that Germany-England game. How was it for you? Um, I missed the entire game. I had to go watch my brother, who is not a big soccer fan, and uh, made the selection to watch a couple episodes of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers instead of the soccer game I wanted to watch. <laughs> so I may not have seen England win, but I do know who the Gold Ranger is now. So I don't know. <laughs> That's At least I got something, something out of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but I just I just watched the highlights when I got back. It's uh, I'm I'm surprised to be honest, but it looks like from what I understand, Southgate went with the back five to kind of counter what Germany was doing and that ended up working pretty well and kind of smothered their chances. So I think that the touchline theory hot streak of jinxing literally everything in the football world has continued given that our last podcast episode was asking the question or posing the question, um, is Robin Gozen simply unstoppable? And it turns out, yes, he was. And the, the way in which England did this, at least defensively speaking, was largely via the precise suggestion that we gave in our final segment, which was to kind of emulate what Chelsea's back line did, um, have a five players, three that took care of the central figures for, for Germany, one that was just a friend out wide for Gozens the Hitchhiker, the anonymous guy out there kind of trying to be unseen until the last possible moment. They basically put, you know, they had Walker in the center and they had Trippier out wide to cover him. Um, Shaw was playing high on Kimmich. And and so ultimately what we saw was, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously delighted as an Argentine who has been very hurt by Germany in international tournaments in the past. So I'm over the moon, um, but I'm also, uh, I guess, amused by the fact that we've continued to kind of everything we say on this podcast is just reverses where the course of reality kind of goes. And so this week, obviously, we're talking about, you know, another maybe bit of irony. We're talking about this interview that came out with Tiago in which he talked about the fact that he feels as though the magic is gone in football and we're, we're talking about this just off the back of probably one of the most exciting single days of football that I've ever witnessed with Spain beating Croatia five to three, and then France bowing out of the tournament with an Mbappe missed penalty as number five to Switzerland, who are the great underdogs in that fixture. And so we're coming at this already at an ironic angle right after that. I think that hopefully we'll, we'll talk today a little bit about the ways in which we've noticed that Maybe the magic has slipped away from football in some capacity. And maybe, you know, by next week, <laughs> the magic will all be back. Yeah, maybe maybe we're just really stupid is the problem. And all the stuff we is the... wrong. And it's not just that we're unlucky. Um, <laughs> That's another option, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it does, it does feel good. At least we did kind of, you know, cover our bases by laying out ways that Ghostens could be stopped. And, you know, maybe Southgate listens to the podcast and he... Uh, Bases tactics off of that. And if, if you are listening, Gareth, please play Jordan Henderson a little bit more. I really miss him. <laughs> I'd like to see him do something. Um, but yeah, I mean, yesterday was a day that, like you said, the magic was very, very clearly there. And, you know, I think that's the kind of magic of football that's like, we're never going to lose. It's kind of the unpredictability of it, the way that, you know, a team can just get back into the game so quickly. Kind of that, uh, that sense of the magic, I think, is here to stay. But there are some other aspects of soccer that maybe have gotten a little bit less magical over the past few years. And Tiago is someone who certainly seems to think so. So um, just to get started, I guess, laying this out, he did an interview, I think it was in The Guardian initially. I don't know what the newspaper was, but uh, yeah, with Sid Lowe. And he pretty much said that he just, he does not like modern football in short. Yeah, he said a lot of different things. He had a lot of different comments on on a variety of different questions that Sidlo posed to him. But the most, I think, interesting segment, uh, one of the things that stood out to me was that he said, just plain and simple, 
we see less magic, less fantasy. Footballers do more, but faster. And so I guess where I want to kind of start today um, is, is on this topic of, well, I guess even taking a step back, the thing that's interesting about this interview and his comments are the fact that I think a lot of fans have certainly felt bits and pieces of this sentiment over the past, uh, whatever time frame you kind of want to include this in. But I think it's been pretty rare for players to come out and express solidarity in those opinions. And I think that obviously if you're playing, you're, you might be caught up in playing and you're making a lot of money. You're kind of fulfilling your childhood dreams in a sense. Um, and, and I think that for the fan, the fan simply spectates and the fan enjoys or tries to enjoy what they're able to see. Yeah. And so with the rise of a handful of different things that we'll obviously dive into shortly, um, I think fans have noticed this more clearly, but it's very interesting for somebody of Tiago's prominence and also a, a player who tends to be quite magical in a sense, in the way that he tends to approach how he plays football. He's played in obviously a variety of different structures and systems, but he always has an individuality and, 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 a, and a certain sparkle to everything that he does. He's always, you know, sprinkling fairy dust on onto his moves and different things. And so I think this was just kind of a surprising thing to read, and but also quite an interesting one. And I think that's the hope for today that we're going to dive into this um, topic, this this question of is the magic gone? Um, that that is probably the essence of our approach here at Touchline Theory, which is to take things that maybe not everybody agrees with, maybe countercultural, maybe different approaches uh, to viewing the way that things are right now. And trying to really dig deep and figure out, hey, is this real? Uh, is it not? Uh, can we can we understand the problem at hand? Um, and can we maybe provide some sort of direction at the end of it? So, yeah, and I think uh, I was, before I get started on that, one thing I want to say is I think Tiago is coming at this from kind of a fresh angle too, because like you said, it's rare to see a player um, talk about this. But I think just kind of the things he's talking about are different from what I've kind of seen. Uh, people talk about when they're disillusioned with modern football because a lot of that I've seen recently has been kind of related to off the pitch stuff, you know, especially with the Super League and uh, everything out there. It's a lot of people saying, you know, oh, the money has changed the game, you know, all, all that sort of thing. But I think what Tiago is talking more about is he, he thinks the magic on the field is gone. He thinks like the actual soccer that we're seeing is, you know, worse or just considerably less fun than the way they used to be. And that that's an opinion I really have not seen that much before compared to kind of just the general oh, money's ruining football kind of stuff. I agree. I think that there are components on the field and components off the field, and we'll hope to touch on things across the aisle, right, in this in this yeah. conversation. But the ones that are most intriguing, I totally agree with you, Will, that like you don't really see somebody who's at the pinnacle of the sport saying, yeah, you know what? This has gotten progressively grayer over time. This is less fun for me. This is, you know, the, the product that we are putting out isn't as exciting as it used to be. So without further ado, um, let's go ahead and get started and dive into, we basically, you know, in terms of the structure of today's episode, it's going to be kind of similar to the super league one. Yeah, um, hopefully we, a bit shorter. Kind of, but. Yes. Um, but, but kind of more just like general conversation about a bunch of different topics. We don't really have much of a skeleton here. It's just kind of high level bullet points. So, yeah, I, I don't think we're going to be able to come away with many clear answers on this either. This is a very subjective thing. And, you know, and the, the magic is not objectively gone. Like if you love modern football, this is not going to make you start hating it. Like there's, there's a lot there for everyone. Well, cool. Um, Let's go ahead and start with one thing that maybe I, I'm particularly interested in getting into, um, mm -hmm. and it has to do with the with individualism versus the collective. Okay, so let's start off there. Um, I think that as somebody who was born in '98 and didn't really get to enjoy some of the kind of more historic figures, you know, I, I'm speaking perhaps a little bit out of my depths here. But what I will say is that I think in recent times, one of the things that has certainly transpired is that we've, we've kind of transitioned as a football appreciating culture away from the idolization of individuals. And obviously you'll still see all the messy Ronaldo goat conversations on Twitter. It's mm -hmm. relentless and it's painful, but we transitioned away from kind of the appreciating those individual moments of brilliance and more towards an emphasis on systems and more uh, towards styles of play that are almost more intangible 
than the things that one single individual can really pull off. Yeah. And this, you know, this is kind of a continuation of something that happened, you know, e even longer ago. Because, um, I mean, from my understanding, like way back in the day, probably like 30, 40 years ago, it was pretty common for kids to just like be fans of players and not even be a fan of a club in particular. You know, they just kind of follow the stars around. And I think that's kind of shifted slowly over the past few decades where, you know, people are now, you know, supporting teams. I think Messi Ronaldo, the guys you mentioned, staying at the same club for you know, 15, 20 years each has probably helped that too, where if you support one of them, you'll naturally be become kind of very tied up with the Barcelona or Real Madrid over the past few years. But, um, well, I mean, on that, on that note, what's interesting is like Ronaldo certainly has jumped around a bit in, in over the course of his career. But what you will see is when play, when, when fans follow the players nowadays, it, it has mm -hmm. become a taboo thing. So when yeah. you're a fan that, 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 you know, becomes a fan of AC Milan when Ibra is there and then Inter Milan when Ibra is there. What what ends up happening is you get kind of like vilified in the common discourse because you're a plastic fan who doesn't attribute their fandom to the group, but rather to the individual. And yeah. I don't necessarily have the foresight to know what it was like back in the day, in the golden years, you know, but, but what I have noticed is that that's definitely kind of a criminal act in modern football. Yeah, and it definitely is. And so sticking sticking to one group, one collective kind of unit is is rewarded. It's it's loyalty, you know. But but when you're loyal to a single player, it doesn't really have the same payoff. And you know, we can look at this and we can dissect this in any number of ways. I think one this is this is probably one of the foundational elements of this entire conversation is this idea that I think recently, you know, Think about it from the think about it from this perspective, right? If you're a fan and you go and you watch a game, whether it be on television or in the stadium, mm -hmm. um, the things that the individual fan, the average fan, is able to appreciate, and this isn't even necessarily docking anyone for a lack of sophistication or anything. I'm not saying that we are particularly sophisticated. I, I think that any fan can just appreciate when one single person does something cool. Right. And, and that's just like if you're even not a fan of football and you watch a lot of basketball and you come and you watch a soccer game and you see one person do something that's neat, then you can cheer for that and you can kind of admire the individual brilliance. And the reason for that is because as fans, as individual fans, that is something that we can theoretically aspire to do you know one player does some cool move on the field and then you can go in your own backyard as millions of kids do regularly and try to emulate that and you you have the power to look at what someone is doing on an individual unit basis and and compare that to yourself or to try to do it as well and yeah and so the connection there is forged, I think a little bit more deeply because again like you watch one person score an insane goal, and it's easier to look at that and compartmentalize that. If you watch an entire team perform some sort of cohesive tactical setup and, and say some sort of more nuanced thing, like the way in which a team presses, which has become a massive point of emphasis in recent years, um, it's, it's much harder for the individual fan to look at a pressing scheme and say, oh, like, and cheer for that because it's, the number of people that are players and that just enjoy playing football is much greater than those that enjoy that are managers or coaches and can see those things and think, oh, this is something that I can implement with my players and my team. It, it's more open to enjoyment when it's just single units shining very brightly. Yeah, it's just, it's just simpler. It's a bit more fun. You know, I think across the board, it's always fun to see two people competing and one of them just be way better than the other and destroy them. It's, you know, very transferable. Like you said, it's something that you know, people who even don't understand things about soccer are going to absolutely love it if, you know, you drop someone with a crazy dribbling move. Right? And yeah, I, I feel like that stuff is becoming less and less common. You know, like, like you said, these. I, I guess if, if I put it like that, as, you know, seeing players get you know, just be a lot better than each other individually. I guess the way I kind of see it is just the the floor has been raised a little bit. Like everyone is very good now. Like all these all these systems tactically are set up to kind of, you know, prevent players from having these moments of individual brilliance. And for the most part, it works. I think, you know, you, you have to play very differently now. There's not as much room for that kind of dribbling run. You have to play this more pressing, you know, cohesive style as a team. And, you know, there are people who like that. 
but it's it's not just I don't know. It's not quite as visceral. It's not just right there. I think viscera the visceral thing is really important because if we look at the nature of like a duel, that's something that like transcends cultures, you know, like people like watching anime because there's these like 1v1 battles and you see like one person triumph and another one that fails. I'm not an, you're looking at me with a funny face. I'm not a big anime guy. Neither but am like, I. But 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 like it, it's just one of those things where you people respond well and it's not alienating when it's just 1v1. That just makes sense, you know. When it suddenly becomes 11v11, part of that dynamic is is eliminated. And if you look at a sport, if we talk about like, you know, the adoption of football in the U.S. versus the adoption of other sports. If you look at basketball, much, much, much of basketball, from what I understand, is kind of split up more easily into these 1v1 matchups. And you have more, more frequently do you see man marking in basketball than you see it in soccer. And more often do you see like one, oh, there's a mismatch here in terms of height and we want to exploit that. Or you see a point guard go down the court and they've got to pull something off to 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 break the ankles and drop the player that's that's defending them right and so i think that that's something that people in the us for instance really respond to is this again it, it's less alienating than being like oh well they're doing this you know complicated tactical system that i think the the focus has shifted onto nowadays you know you yeah, see people online talking about just like Okay. Basketball is an interesting example too, because that's something. I mean, that that kind of one v one play is something that's kind of gone away a bit in the past few years, because everyone's everyone's just so good at shooting now. Like everything has to be so spaced out, and there's there's been kind of similar complaints about. Uh, I think it's a much more drastic uh, style change, even in basketball. But I think there's a lot of parallels you can draw from that to soccer, where it's just everyone's so much better. The tactics have improved, and you know what kind of ends up getting dropped from the game is this. You know. Even even if you're an excellent player, it is ultimately unreliable to be going for these one v ones every time because you you just cannot pull it off consistently. And you know, I guess the collective tactical mind of basketball has just said, okay, it's not worth it to try doing this anymore. You, you're just gonna have to take smarter shots and maybe not play as much as an individual trying to do all this crazy stuff. And I think similar things have happened in soccer. One of the starkest parallels, I think, to the thing, everything that you just mentioned about taking smarter shots and how unreliability and things of that nature is this kind of rise of the collective appreciation for XG, right? So XG is, is a yeah. model that I'm, I'm certainly no expert in, but it's a, it's a way of basically quantifying the likelihood that a shot will go in from any point on the field and any X, Y coordinates and in, in some systems, even a Z height and perhaps, and taking into consideration other factors as well. Mm -hmm. And that the standard kind of XG map radiates outwards from the goal, as I think is pretty intuitive, right? Because yeah. you have a better chance of scoring if you're at, you know, even if you're, say, if you're at the 18, 18 yards away from the end line, you have a better chance of scoring right down the center than you will on the sideline, right? And that makes sense. And so there's kind of this emanation of um, this, like, radar that comes out of the, the goal mouth. And what this has basically done is I think allowed us to have a better appreciation and a more refined understanding of these shots that we should be taking. But it's also brought into the forefront this idea that we shouldn't be taking others. And yeah. one of the things that is most exciting about football are the moments in which the unpredictable happens. The moments in which, I mean, we saw in a weird way, we saw this with Pedri's own goal um, <laughs> against, against Croatia when he passed the ball back to Unai Simon from 40 yards out and the ball rolled under his foot. I mean, that's quite the long distance banger. But I mean, if, if we think about the 2010 World Cup, Netherlands versus Uruguay and uh, Giovanni van Bronckhorst's belter, the firecracker from 35, 40 yards out all the way in the opposite far corner over um, Muslera. Yeah. Like that is like, that's like my favorite goal in a World Cup ever. And those are the types of shots that are receding um, in this modern game that that has a heightened awareness of the fact that yes those are not probable and once everybody agrees that the success from those long distance ranges for instance is less probable then people stop doing it because it becomes a game of such fine margins that you look to optimize everything and when yeah. you look for that optimization you don't have those peaks and valleys but those peaks and valleys can sometimes be inextricably linked to excitement it's like the thing that accesses our emotional centers most directly you know like when somebody scores that goal you're just your your mind is blown you're losing 
losing your mind in the stands. And when we see teams score more, but score way more tap-ins because of crosses played far post after dragging the defense to one side and switching it to the other, yes, your team is winning more, but the excitement is less raw and it's less animalistic than just seeing something utterly absurd actually work. Yeah, there's, you know, just a level of unpredictability that you kind of have with things like long shots. Because, you know, we, we talked about XG. Like, a long shot from, like, 30 yards out would have an XG of, like, 0.01, probably, or something like that. And, you mm -hmm. know, I think that the, the chances these teams are going for, the chance, like, a team like Man City tries to create with this little swift passing around the box, that has, like, 0.5. So it's, like, 50 times better, right? And, you know, the, the collective thing has been, like, okay, if we're going to have to take 50 of these long shots to expect the same amount of goals as we can from, like, having one nice piece of play that gets into the box, like, why would we spend any time at all during this game looking for long shots? Right, and this gonna... is kind of... This is kind of like a peripheral thing on top of that. Once your entire tactical system is set up to give you high percentage chances, which are inherently things that are closer to goal and less impressive for mm -hmm. the average player, then you also, when you stop taking long shots in that sense, you are certainly choosing routes that may be higher percentage shots and things of that nature. But you also just get worse at taking long shots. And so now the yeah. long shots that you do see, for the most part, they just get skied into the stands or they go out for a throw-in. You know, like you just see these terrible shots being taken. And and then the crowd, it's kind of like this weirdly reinforcing cycle where then the crowd is like, oh, boo. Like, you know, maybe we should have stuck to the whole XG thing. and We should have worked the ball around and made the extra pass. And then the entire team throws out their arms because they're like, come on, man. Yeah. Like you, you, We could have played a better shot than that. And, and it's, so it's just this vis vicious kind of cycle where it's it's just always pushing. Optimization can kind of be an ugly thing because you're trying to yeah. make the machine better, but you're not trying to make the machine wonkier and more unpredictable because the whole goal is trying to achieve a more predetermined outcome with every shot you take or getting closer to that predeterminism. And predeterminism isn't as exciting as not knowing where things will take you inherently. No, and you know... We've, we've talked about this before, too, but when you have kind of that, you know, I guess, predeterministic lookout or, or outlook where you're trying to, you know, create these chances and, you know, you know you're not going to do something like crazy and take these long shots, then you become a little bit easier to defend, too. And that's something I've definitely seen with Liverpool over the past couple of seasons is, um, you know, we used to have like Steven Gerrard, Philippe Coutinho banging them in from outside the box every year. And over the past few years, our team just does not take any long shots anymore. And, you know, it's been fine. We've still scored about the same amount of goals, but there are times where just nothing else is working. That I'm like, man, I just wish someone was here that was actually willing to hit one right now. And just no one is. I mean, because, you know, we, we talked about this, um, I think, with the frantic finales. But, like, it's you can't really defend perfectly against a long shot, right? You can defend perfectly to stop all these, you know, 0.5 XG chances, to stop teams getting these opportunities in the box. But if someone just hits a screamer from 30 yards out into the top corner, like if it's right right in the you know, postage stamp, whatever you want to call it, the keeper is just never going to be able to stop that. You know, it's it's a good thing to have in your back pocket. And you know, I think being good at that can help you in other ways too. Because if you show, you know, at the start of the game that you have that threat, that you're willing to take those shots, then teams start having to step out a bit and to close you down in the midfield and not just give you quite as much space. And you know, I think that's why you hear fans just like screaming for players to shoot all the time and i love nothing more than like when a center backs on the ball like 30 yards out everyone's screaming to shoot and it just flies over the ball and the fans are like uh i guess we asked well, for that. one i mean yeah like one other way in which i've seen that manifest itself is like with these 1v1 dribbling battles on the wings i think that you've seen a lot less like players look to take fullbacks on these days rather than get in behind or to come short, receive the ball and play it off so that you can play it. You know, you can reroute the ball. And I mean, we saw in the, in the champions league final this year that like almost a lot of passes that the fullbacks or that the wide players were receiving. And this is by partially due to Chelsea's system, but a lot of the balls that Mares and Sterling and Zinchenko and the, and Bernardo Silva Foden were receiving had their backs to goal is this very conservative <laughs> shift because it's like, I've definitely seen that a lot. Like you, if you, you don't really see even players that are incredibly talented at dribbling and so good on the ball, you just don't see them take on players anymore. Like Sterling is an interesting case, right? Of that. He had a really good game. He's having a really good tournament right now in the euros, but 
he's not necessarily the type of player that really just drives at a fullback and makes them feel helpless. He very often will receive the ball, kind of suggest that he's going to take the line, cut back, play it back centrally. And and Sterling is an excellent player, but it's less of that, you know, like we're not passing the ball to a guy that we just know every time he gets the ball, he just wants to beat them because in his head, he's keeping a tally mark of how many times he humiliates the the fullback. It's just not what, what's, what's happening. Um, and and I think part of this kind of can be tied into the question, the question which is a very large question, and maybe we we can tackle more fully in another podcast, of like, what is the purpose of all of this? And it's a hand wavy thing to, to to kind of throw out there, but like, a, a lot of I think, and we'll touch upon this more in the second half. But a lot of mm-hmm. the purpose of sport, I think, recently has been muddied with external factors, with money, with media, with other things that you know, sport has become a vehicle for and, and, and it's gone away from this idea that sport is in fact an entity in and of itself that carries its own intrinsic value. And so now the question is this kind of, you know, what, what, what is football for? Is it for entertainment? Does it have like a true, like built in value? Are the matchups that are rivalries, rivalries because they are, or are they rivalries because of the 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 fact that the people that support these teams have hated each other for so long is there that there's history there's cultural implications or is it just that you know when red plays blue they instantly just hate each other and that's the thing about the the thing like and, and so with that with that question it's it's you basically pull back and you ask yourself like is our goal here to win as a player as a team as a coach is our goal here to entertain the crowd? Are we here to make the fans feel as though their money was worth spending? You know, is a one nil victory that will lead to a trophy at the end of the year as valuable as winning a fewer a few fewer games, but having, you know, five to three games and 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 battering some and losing maybe to others? I don't know. It's, it's it's a tough one. I think it's hard to pinpoint where exactly football is on that spectrum between being, you know, like actual life or death and then just being entertainment. But I think it is clearly moving more towards the entertainment side of things because the things you're talking about, you know, like these actual rivalries, like I think those those must have meant more in the past when things were just a bit more localized or like, you know, it was actually like Liverpool against Manchester and like players from Liverpool and Manchester. And now it's just you know, not not to disparage any of these players, but, you know, calling it, putting it frankly, calling them what they are, it's a bunch of mercenaries, you know, on both these teams. They're people that have, you know, for the most part, no real connection to these cities. It's become, I guess, more of just a, more of a show, I think. I think the, just the addition of all this TV and the fact that, you know, this is getting broadcast to millions and millions more people than it ever has been before. It means, I think it is com- becoming more of a product. There's more money tied up within, with it now. And... I think if it's if it's not just supposed to be entertainment already, I think it's moving in that direction. It's losing so, a bit of its original purpose. So what's kind of neat about what you're saying in that case is that it seems to almost contradict what we've seen on the field. Because on the field, we've we've transitioned, I think, to from what Tiago is saying, and what I would probably in some sense agree with, this more sterile, this more uh, pragmatist approach and less of a welcome to the circus. You've purchased your ticket and you're about to see something that you've never seen before. It's a lot yeah. more uh, goal oriented rather than fun oriented. Wouldn't well, you agree? I, I think that's it is. I think that's because soccer means very, very different things to the fans and to the people who are actually involved in it now. Because I, I think, you know. Yeah, like you said, like, you know, there is that question, like, okay, if football is becoming like a big entertainment circus, like, why is the play on the field not reflecting that? Why is it becoming, you know, more disciplined now? And I think I think that's because, you know, it doesn't need to be a circus for people to enjoy it. You know, like I said at the start, I don't think this is a common sentiment that Tiago has, that like modern football is just bad. I think people are still going to watch, you know, no matter what, even if it's not, maybe it's individual focus and doesn't have quite as much flair as it used to. I mean, it's still great. You see a day like yesterday, and it's like, who's going to stay away from that? Right. Regardless of, you know, what you think about the number 10 and taking long shots like that's just beautiful to watch every time. It's a great product. And but I think the reason it has become so much more disciplined is just the money. The stakes are higher than they have ever been before. You know, there's there's more competition for places you can ever been before. There will be the next guy up to take your spot if you like make a single mistake. You know, the stakes are just so much higher than I think they have been at any point in the past. 
And with that, I think let's carry into our halftime break. We will touch upon that when we come right back. Sounds good. Welcome back to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. We are on track for our first ever episode under an hour. So we're just going to waste no time, get right back into it. Um, one of the things we haven't really touched on yet that Tiago talked about in this interview was the death of the number 10. You know, Tiago said, the figure of the number 10 has almost disappeared. That's his quote. It's something I've definitely noticed over the past few years, something I'm very upset about. And it's just sad that all these players, the Coutinho's, Mesodozo, James Rodriguez, seem to just have no place in modern football anymore. And none of these players are that old. None of them are like completely unusable past their prime, but none of them have played pretty much at all over the past five years. And like, why is that? I think the 10 is often the, the, the source of the true magic in a lot of historical sides. And I think if you, one particular example I like to think about is, is Juan Roman Riquelme for the Argentine side, who is a guy that was like very slow, but so unbelievably skillful and so perceptive and so able to get a crowd on, the, on their feet. Um, I think of like Guti from Real Madrid, which I know yep. as a culé is like hard for me to say. Guti is like probably my favorite Real Madrid player of all time um, because I was just always so utterly impressed with everything that he did. And he was never the, the face of the Galacticos. He was never you know, super, super prominent, but he always, always, always made these incredibly high packing passes, threaded through balls, all of these like things that basically will unlock a defense with some artist's creativity. And I think that nowadays you mentioned a couple of really good examples right now. James Rodriguez is like, you know, there was this whole stuff about him going you know, well, he lost his place sort of at Real Madrid, went to Bayern, now then Everton. Now he wants to leave Everton because he doesn't feel at home there. It's like one of the things that has pushed this is the added onus of defensive responsibility onto some of these positions. And why has there been defensive responsibility augmented? Because of the pragmatism, because of the need for pressing systems to include everybody and to work as a unit, as a well-oiled machine full of pistons firing off in coordination and and you don't really have a room anymore to have a player that doesn't do that and so or at least a lot manager, of these players managers don't seem to think that you have room anymore i think i think there's a bigger debate sure. over whether there is room but this just something that isn't really allowed you know like you said those players that you mentioned um another kind of classical example georgi haji has also always been a favorite of mine as a number 10 he was kind of a you know, did not do defensive work at all and just kind of drifted wherever he wanted. Incredible long passing, especially incredible long shooting. Um, I, just, I just don't feel like that player can really exist anymore. You know, I, I think it used to be that if you were good enough on the ball, you know, if you were this much better than everyone else, then that's fine. You can just do that and don't worry about the defensive part. You know, you're an attacking midfielder. You don't have to defend that area of the pitch that much anyway. It's okay. But now you're not allowed to do that. Now whoever's in that role, you know, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, even a Christian Eriksen, you know, before uh, so the tragedy that happened to him, you know, these these more modern tens play almost like a traditional eight in a lot of ways, and they have to track back and do this box to box work. You know, it, it's KDB. almost like they play with two eights. You know, a lot of teams now instead of an eight and a ten. KDB is a fascinating example of that because he was pushed out of Chelsea. I'm I I believe when Mourinho was there. I might be wrong about that, but he was pushed out of Chelsea. I think that's right. Because of his lack of defensive output. And then he went to Wolfsburg and then came back to City and kind of flourished into this much more modern 810 hybrid where he's so dynamic and such a physical presence and plays such a role defensively that this is now one of the guys that is the best creators in the world. But this this more wispy, more emotional, more sensitive 10, like I think Mesut Ozil is like classically kind of categorized as, mm -hmm. has has withered away, and yet Ozil backfilling for Real Madrid, and even moments like that goal against, uh, was it like Ludogorets? I don't know how to say the name, but like yeah. there was there were goals and plays that Mesut Ozil orchestrated <laughs> that were utter beauty, that were the type of thing that like, that is the magic, that are diminishing because they it's not so free anymore everybody has a role to play and there isn't so much room for this roaming i mean i know that like i listen to podcasts and different and read a lot about barcelona throughout the year 
the, one of the biggest persistent comments over the past like two, three years has been about the fact that like, oh, well, you know, Messi doesn't press. And it's like, if you have one player that doesn't press, well, you certainly can't have any other ones. And yeah. I, know, I think there were reservations like for Man City when they wanted to sign him about the fact that like, oh, in the PL, can you even afford to have one player that doesn't press? It's like, you're getting Lionel Messi, man. Like, what are we talking about here? Yeah, I think... What, one term that I find really interesting kind of in relation to this is luxury players. That's not something I really hear much about, but five years ago, this was like, you know, a very established concept. Like there's this idea that like bad teams, you know, with very good players on them, you know, these, these good players were seen as luxury players. They're like, okay, well, maybe you can do that at Real Madrid, but you know, for Crystal Palace, this is not acceptable. You have to work with the rest of the team. You have to do this. And now, now maybe like even luxury teams, it seems, are not allowed to have luxury players anymore. You can't have a Real Madrid team that is just so incredible in terms of defensive work at every other position that you can afford to have Mesodozil in there doing absolutely nothing. You know, now you need every single player, and you can't have an Isco or someone like that in the eleven pretty much at all. I, I quite like that. I think one player that has been really, really in the forefront of every conversation when it comes to luxury players over the past 10 years is Paul Pogba. Yeah. A player that I have a ton of admiration for. I loved him back at Juventus. It's a pity that he went to United based on my personal allegiances and ties to different clubs. But you can very, very vividly see the stark contrast between when he plays for France and when he plays for United. And and the main yeah. reason for that is that in Fran at France, or in the France in the French team, sorry, he he is backed up by N'Golo Kante, which basically tells him that he doesn't have nearly as much responsibility. He doesn't have to have as much discipline. And when you give Pogba that freedom, he, suddenly he flourishes into this player that can play those through balls that the player that he's finding isn't even on the television screen for, you know, yeah. against, against who was it against Germany against, and like he can, he can have the long shot that he scored against Switzerland yesterday, or he can do these skillful moves that get the crowd kind of on their feet. And, and so when you kind of like cut the, the shackles of responsibility away from some of these players who suffer under all that pressure, because Pogba doesn't do what Pogba does for United in the same way that he does for France, yeah. because for France, he's given what is effectively that freedom. He's not so much a cog in the machine as someone whose unpredictability, the team thrives and, and, and builds off of. Yeah, and, and United actually did finally figure this out this year and have started playing two defensive midfielders behind him and giving him a very free-roaming role kind of on the left side of the team. He's he's had probably his best six months there since he signed in the past six months. And um, I would say, too, that one thing that helps him for France is I think, you know, we've talked about this before, but I think international football is maybe uh, not as tactically mature as club football is, and maybe there's a bit more room for a number 10-like player. I think that's, you know, James Rodriguez has still been quite good for Colombia over the past few years, and though he hasn't played, I think there's a little bit more room for, I guess, that luxury number 10 in internationals, just because the pressing isn't quite uh, as locked down at the same level as in, in the club game. I think that mentioning James Rodriguez is an interesting case, because I think that the 10... The culture, or at least the people who are pushing for the culture to stay alive for the number 10, is probably most vibrant in South America. Yeah. I think there's the greatest appreciation for the number 10 over there, where the 10s have historically been so prominent in the overarching landscape of football. And, yeah, and you South see America, a lot more... South America, too, is somewhere that's always had a bit more love for the individual game than the team game. You know, since back in the 30s and these first first World Cups, that's always been kind of part of the culture that wasn't really present to the same degree in Europe. Absolutely. And you you take a you, you can you can just watch any like Copa America game right now, juxtaposed with the European games and the European games are so much more cagey and so much more kind of. Yeah. There's there's almost a lar a greater fear of losing in Europe from what I've noticed than than a joy of of playing and a joy of winning and and that's something that's an entirely different conversation but in South America it's like the way that you build a team in South America to try to like you know muscle your way through qualifiers is like the way that Chile has done it historically which is mm -hmm. have eight guys that are just muscle heads and are tattooed and looked like they just escaped from the local prison, put them on a field to just rough and tumble and be incredibly aggressive and, and, you know, dirty tackles after, after the play stuff. And, you know, basically play the referee, waste time, try to get to penalties. And then you just have like, you know, an Alexis Sanchez up, up top, who's capable of doing something that's brilliant. Right. Or you have, 
even one of the best players in that Chile side. Again, I'm speaking with a little bit of bias. I have to admit that I'm not a fan of Chile because of, again, what they've done to my Argentina in recent years. But like one of the best players in Arturo Vidal is like literally a refined thug who is has proven to be unbelievably useful in many, many systems. Um but like in in South American football, like he just kind of comes to life as just this dirty player that's out there to make these harsh tackles and to intimidate and yeah. to be a workhorse. And in Europe, to, uh, you know, instead of that, right now, you're seeing a lot more like each player has a very sophisticated role within their club setup and they come here and you have to try to figure out a system that works. The systems are a lot harder to find in, in South American football, you know, and 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 so... What ends up happening is I think that it gives that even more oxygen to really, really take form with this 10 kind of losing its place, specifically in Europe, I think over just generally, but specifically in Europe where there's so much more attention mm-hmm. towards analysis and data. We talked about XG earlier. It's it's evolving at a, in a different path than that of South America. Um, and, and, and you even will see like some of these young starlets will come to Europe from South America, like from whatever the river plate or Fluminense and, and these like wingers that are really tricky and talented and touted to be the next big thing. And then they, they, they flop in Europe because they have all of this sparkling ability in an environment in which that might be more rewarded, but then they go to systems where they aren't given the freedom to just take players on and they aren't given the, the forgiveness that, oh, well, you know, if you don't beat him and the fullback takes the ball, we're just going to clatter right into him with studs up and then complain to the ref that it wasn't even a card. It's mm-hmm. not how it works. Yeah, and uh, going back to the Copa America, I mean, I, I, I've i watched probably as much of the Copa America as I have the Euros this year just because I've missed a lot of the Euro games. Normally, I'd probably lean more to the European side just because I'm more familiar with most of the players. But I mean, it, it has been a lot more exciting. You're completely right. And, you know, I, I look at the goals that I see. I guess the average goal scored in the Copa America is, you know, maybe a bit more fluid, a bit closer to a bicycle kick or something cool like that than what I've seen in the Euros. And I think one really interesting thing, too, that I think I can tie into this is is the own goals from the Euros. I think that is fascinating. Oh, yeah. I, I read the stat yesterday. There have been more own goals scored in this year's Euros than in all previous tournaments combined. Or, or at least the same amount, which I, I think is partially due just down to the fact that you can like video, video analyze all these goals now and like make absolutely sure, okay, this shot was not going on, on target. It was a little deflection. They give it to the own goal. But I think part of it too is, is what we've talked about. This kind of, you know, the teams have shifted to, you know, in, instead of like looking for your players to produce individual moments of magic, it's like get the ball into dangerous positions, right? And that's what an own goal really is, is, you know, it, yeah. it's forcing the, the defense into a very dangerous position. And it's this idea, like if we if we get the ball into this area enough times, eventually something will happen and it will go in because like the XG is just that high. Right? That, that's a very interesting take. We talked about the Bermuda Triangle, whatever. I, again, I don't even remember the specific name from last week about this idea that players will fizz a ball across the box between the goalkeeper and the six just out of reach of the goalkeeper where if they wanted to consistently come out and grab it, they would be leaving their near post totally open for a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's this region that the ball's hit with such pace that it's either going to find your player near post, your player far post, or one of the defenders is going to try to stop it and knock it in their own net. And like we've seen that in the Portugal-Germany game. We've seen that in several other occasions. And I think... It stems from the XG conversation where, like you yeah. said, the chances that you're going to score an own goal that was initially hit from 40 yards out are slim because it's just like the deflections. If you just think about the distances to goal, the number of angles off a deflection that a defender might have from a long shot that hits them around the top of the 18, there's way more likelihood that it'll go anywhere but the goal than it will in the goal. And it's also further away, giving the keeper more time to react to any ricochets. For sure, if yeah. you go... And you smash a ball against a center back that's like in the six. Now, like, you know, 30% of the ricochets can go in the net and the goalkeeper has much, much less time to react to it. And so designing systems that are oriented more towards these optimized scenarios, you're totally right. I hadn't even thought about that. Like it just makes own goals even more likely. And so now we just have a ton of own goals. Yeah. And that's certainly less magical. No, no one gets to cheer for an own goal. And no, maybe that's ev- another everyone's just a little bit sad se- after it happens. It's not great. Maybe that maybe maybe that's even like a separate conversation. The the idea of of celebrations, and maybe we can touch quickly here because I know it's a big topic. Like even on VAR 
And VAR has been one of the biggest, biggest, biggest things that everyone has cited recently that sucks the excitement out of the game. But I think one of the clearest examples of that is the fact that now every single time somebody scores, you have to wait two minutes for the check to occur before you even get to celebrate. And, and football is a game of delayed gratification in which you have to enjoy the select moments because there might only be one goal in a game that decides it. Yep. And if even those peaks are, are, are filtered out and are, are drawn back towards the baseline emotional kind of average buzz then it sucks. It just, it makes it worse. Now, now you can't even just like score and just like rip into the stands and, you know, like scream your heart out. Now you score, you turn, like every time Gabby Jesus scores, he turns and looks at the linesman. Everyone does it now. And everyone. And and that, that's kind of always been a thing in some ways, but you know, at least you'd know after a second. And yeah, it, it, it's terrible just sitting around for like two minutes after a goal score, like watching all the replays being like, you know, especially on some of these close ones, it's like, I, I just have no idea which way it's going to go. It's just like they're going to draw a line somewhere here. It's either going to be onside or offside. It like has no effect on the play. Like it clearly didn't matter. They were effectively level. But it's just you're just waiting for like this, you know, referee. It's just like draw lines on a program instead of like getting to celebrate when the ball hits the back of that. You're celebrating when, you know, he draws his little line down. It's an inch ahead of the onside line. It's, and that's just not exciting. It's that's not just exciting. that that. that it's not exciting as a fan. I can't even imagine how bad this would be as a right. player, right? Unfortunately, I never got to a high enough level that I had to deal with VAR in my games that I'm playing. But it, it would just suck if you know you hit a crazy goal and you're just waiting around wondering what happens next. Well, think about the fan that's in the stadium that has to sit there for two, three minutes while the VAR check happens. It's the same thing for the fan too, where for them, it's like you start celebrating, you realize that they have to do this dull thing that everyone just waits for. And the excitement that builds when you're waiting for VAR to say either yes or no is not the same excitement, they're not the same crescendo as when the team is playing this bubbling counterattack and they're knocking the ball around and one guy beats another player and drops him and then finds a far post pass and it goes into the net. Like that's, that's like, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, sorry to anybody who's offended by this. That's like a sexual thing almost like that's, there's a, a lot going on there where you're leading up to this moment of, of uh, this peaking moment. And like, with VAR, it's just like there's there's nothing. There's no there's no there's no foreplay with VAR. It's just yeah. instant gr gratification or misery. And how can you without a ramp? How can you how can you get to that top point? You can't. So you just end up reaching a, a lower point, and it's less exciting. It's less fun, and. That's, I mean, if we talk about magic, magic is the thing that, again, I'm venturing into weird places here, but like magic is a thing that's arousing to watch as a fan and not even yeah. in a sexual sense, but just generally like that's the type of thing that gets you excited and makes you creep to the edge of your seat. And when you have to sit there and wait for three minutes, yeah, it's like, oh, it's a goal. Well, yeah, I mean, I kind of expected that. Oh, cool. Now I guess I'm cheering. Uh, it's, it's just, it, it's a, so much more blunt. And and yeah. that part of it is definitely terrible. It's pretty bad. And I, I think, you know, on the whole, I definitely don't like VAR. I think it's, I mean, I, it's, it's fixed some calls, but, like, there's still a lot of mistakes that are made. And I think the mistakes that are made now are kind of maybe harder for me to, like, to accept. Because, you know, in the past, it's like there were a couple times a season where, like, there would just be a terrible offside call. But I'd be like... Okay, yeah, the, the play's moving really, really fast. It's like, I understand this is just human error. But like, you know, like, like I said, with some of these goals where it just feels like a ref is arbitrarily deciding whether it is onside or offside, you know, when these two players are completely level, you know, I, I, I can't really take anything away from that. I can't say, oh, we did this wrong. It just, it just feels so arbitrary. And like, I don't know, I, I'm not someone who thinks there's like a huge refereeing conspiracy against Liverpool, but like, the thought like would never have even entered my mind before VAR was a thing. Because like I said, these, these are all decisions. You can understand why they got wrong. You know, I, I see people drawing lines in different places every week and I'm like, I just don't get it. Like, I don't get where the consistency is. It, it doesn't seem like there is any. And I feel like, you know, maybe we are just getting screwed over, over, like over and over again. And there's just no way for me to know. Cause it's, um, you know, it's not right there anymore. There's a, there's a level of detachment. And I'm not on really the sure what goes on in those rooms. 
On the topic of of being able to view the game after the fact, and I think maybe maybe one interesting way to look at this too is through the lens of what I called in an in an old piece for Touchline Theory called "Why the Hail Mary Fails in Our Football," hmm. which is also an episode that we did, kind of based off the same idea, yep. the I frantic finales conversation. Right. Yeah. So so one of the things that I talked about there is this idea of the real problem, and that's real spelled R E L, as in a film real highlight reel. Um, and the real problem is basically this idea that we often as fans only ever see the tip of the iceberg. Um, and that iceberg can both be the iceberg that, that sunk the Titanic or the iceberg that is like the most beautiful iceberg in the world, if that makes any sense. And I think it, it really the, doesn't, but we're going to run with it, I guess. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, so let me explain. So what I'm saying here is basically that whenever any player does anything, let's say a player will play a thousand minutes over the course of a season, mm-hmm. that season is distilled into one nine minute skills and highlights video with intense music on YouTube yeah. every single time for every single player of remote prominence. And at the same time, you'll have the same thing for their biggest failures. You know, uh, Unai Simon mistake compilation full of just his blunders and errors because the internet is ruthless these days. And I think no. one of the problems is when <clears throat> when you have a, going beyond just a stadium, but when you have a collective kind of consumer base for football that so often is only privy to the absolute peaks. What that does is it makes those peak moments kind of sit even more so on a razor thin knife's edge because players will become more fearful of attempting something that has is maybe high risk, high reward, because if they fail, they're going to end up on a compilation. They're going to end up memed on Twitter and there's going to be all these people laughing at them. And Instead of what I think was certainly a maybe generational difference, if we go back 20 years, that didn't really exist. You don't have those moments like living on, you know, even even for those players, like somebody has gone back and found clips of those players and just strung together all of their craziest skills and highlights to the point to which that we think that that's just everything that they used to always do when you used to be on the field. Yeah, you don't o- see... only, only the best survives from those players from those older eras, right? And so what then that does is it kind of raises the bar for the current players and says, well, you know, we always have these conversations about legacies that that go across different generations. It's like, you know, now for any winger that's trying to be as good as George Best once was, like now they've got to somehow compete with games that everyone's watching in every time they have the ball and take somebody on with the weird one clip that we have grainy film black and white of George Best. Like... And you can't do that. And so this kind of cultural shift towards, you know, being very, very selective, this highly selective memory and only picking out moments, the act of picking them out convinces us that's all that exists. And yet that's just not what it is. And so when you go on the international stage, players don't have the same freedom to be like, oh, I'm going to try something that's never been done before because that feeds directly into a Lekeep match rating that feeds directly into online scoring from fans. When you tried a couple things that didn't work and suddenly, like you said, the competition is much greater. So now you have players on the bench that are going to replace you for the next match. And, and what that does is that progressively transitions players from trying those things to simply not trying them and to going the tried and true way and doing yeah. things that they know will work or are less adventurous. And, like I said, that adventure is a thing that we consider to be magical in many ways. Yeah, and you know that 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 risk has just exploded over the past few years because you know the information is worldwide now. Because like if uh, you know if twenty years ago, or I guess maybe even thirty years ago, bear for this, if someone like does some dumb stuff during a game, like you know your teammates are going to laugh at you. But, like no one around the world is going to be laughing at it. You're not going to have like you know, managers or like potential clubs you could be going to in the future, like reading these match reports from your games and seeing like, oh, like this guy tried some dumb stuff and it didn't work. Like he might not have the character to play for my team. You just, you just don't have that much freedom because anything can be pounced on at any time. And I, go ahead. Yeah. I think, I, think that, I think that that's been augmented too by the way in which money and contracts and things like that have been dealt with as well. Yeah. Because I think that we talk about the fact that there's more money in there than ever and now players have sponsorship deals and all these different things they represent and they also represent you know, a, a company that whose boots they're wearing and all this other nonsense. But 
if you think about it, like there's this constant need these days for players to prove themselves with augmented transfer fees. That's a huge thing where mm-hmm. you might just try to be consistent instead of be flashy and get into a bad spell of, of, of poor form. And, you know, there's, there's all these like achievement and stat based bonuses in contracts. And that can shift the focus too, right? Like if you have a clause in your contract that says that you get a $10 million bonus, $10 million bonus for achieving, you know, for winning the Champions League, then that becomes your focus as opposed to you get a $10 million bonus for like filling the, packing the stadium because they're chanting your name because they know that you're out there doing sombrero flicks. And so there's certainly been kind of a weird sterilization process there too, where now players are like monetarily rewarded for just contributing to the collective success departing from what might originally in football have been the, you know, you know, the origins of football were, were made for, you know, are, are surround like discipline and all these other different things. But one of the reasons that we all call it playing football is because playing is playing and it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be something that people enjoy. And so now you have like the way in which these players make their livelihood and support their families and give to charity and buy fancy cars is now linked to things like, how many goals did you score instead of perhaps, you know, how many passes did you make that no one else could make? Because it's harder to quantify and it's harder to kind of encapsulate what that magic really means. But it's a weird streamlining process that, again, as we've said with all these different things, takes a nice sharp sword and dulls it and bangs it against a blunt object and makes it less captivating. Yeah. And, you know, this is maybe where we're transitioning to more of the off the field stuff. But, the you know, there is a trade off with money and fun. And, you know, there's there's just so much money in these games now and the competition is so high across the world that I, I just don't think there's room for these teams to have fun. I mean, you... I don't know. I, I don't think there's ever been a team that's, like, been promoted to the top division and just has had absolutely no hope of staying up and it's just like, right, we're just going to mess around this year and have some fun. But, like, right. now, you know, it, it's dozens or tens of millions of dollars the difference between staying up for one season and, you know, getting sent right back down. It's like, that's not a position in which you can have any fun. That's one in which you're going to be absolutely desperate. You're not going to be thinking about playing attacking football at all, right? Because yeah, you, you sign, you're going to get laughed at for being an idiot. You know, if, if Swansea you, come up and, and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. play completely, you know, gung ho the entire time, then people are going to say, what were they thinking? You know, they've completely ruined their future. It doesn't matter that they're more entertaining than a Burnley or something. If, if they do worse, then they just lose all that money. Instead, you sign Sam Allardyce and you hope that they can survive the drop, right? And you, so yeah. when you try to survive the drop against teams that are fluid and attacking, there's this, it's, it's this enchanting thing about playing a low block, yeah. trying to, you know, win free kicks and do different things like that. But it's, you, it's just survival probably, though. It's, it's not, it's not thriving or doing anything like that. It's like Burnley have survived for years, but is anyone really that happy about it? Are Burnley fans even that happy about what their team looks like most of the time? Like, I, I don't know. You gotta, you gotta really you got to really buy into the Sean Dyche kind of mentality to take pride in that. And I think, I mean, it's interesting. You saw Leeds this year come into the Premier League and obviously have a squad that was, and a manager that was certainly capable for things in the top flight and maybe didn't even necessarily have the same amount of risk. But they came in guns a-blazing and they said, we're going to try to have that fun. And their games are, I think, the most entertaining in Europe. I I watched the most in the Premier League besides Liverpool last year. And they were always, it was always an exciting time when you watched them. so I think on that note, I, what I want to conclude our episode with, because we're getting up on our on our hour here, is on this recent final kind of off the field, on the field uh, linked topic, which is the recent kind of abandonment of UEFA's away goal um, <sighs> situation. Yeah. And I know that that has a lot of reactions from different fans. And I know, Will, you feel pretty strongly about it. So tell me, how exactly does that contribute to this overall discussion? So... Like away goals for anyone who doesn't know are pretty much a rule in you know European or pretty much any two-legged knockout stage in which um, the goals you score away from home are worth more than the ones you score at home. So if the if the whole thing finishes tied on aggregate, you know each team has scored three goals. The one team that scored two goals away and one at home will progress instead of the team that maybe scored you know one goal away and two at home. And the reason this was put in the first place is because, you know, when they started having these two-legged ties, they ran into a pretty consistent problem. And that's that the team who had the second leg at home had a massive advantage. Because what these teams would do is they'd see, okay, 
this is two legs. We have the second one at home and that's the more important one. That's where it's actually going to be decided. So what we're going to do is we're just going to play incredibly defensively in the away game. We're, we're going to go for a zero, zero draw and try and just like erase that game from existence and make it not matter at all. Turn this two legged game into a one legged match that is now at our home instead. And away goals came in and they fixed that problem. And now they're taking them away again. And I don't know why. I, I don't know what the rationale is for this. Um, I, I don't think anything's particularly changed and that teams are going to stop doing this. And, you know, it honestly seems to me like it's just kind of turns it into more of a lottery of which team gets drawn home second, you know, because that, that's a big, big advantage now. I mean, it wasn't there before. I, yeah. I, one of the things that's tough about all of this is the fact that, like, a lot of those historic moments, these magical moments, came from these away goal comebacks. I mean, we're talking a Liverpool and a Barcelona fan here. There's one in recent memory that has to do with that. There's the PSG remontada that was like one of the most insane games I've ever watched. I remember I was sitting in a stats class as a senior in high school watching the game instead of paying attention in school and leapt out of my seat while the professor was talking. I just sprinted into the hallway, said I needed to go to the bathroom, and like everybody looked at me funny, but I was just like sprinting down the halls being I've like moments too. Yeah. We've, we've done it. We've gone and done it. And, and, and you, again, you lose some of that magic. It, it yeah. makes the well, games, yeah. it incentivizes this more negative kind of stereotypical approach. I think that the away goals make it so that when you go away, you really, really want to get that away goal. So it's almost like the team that has the advantage by being home suddenly has to be concerned about the other team really coming out and firing in all cylinders. And that's that makes for good football in many cases. And I think what I really love about the away goals rule and the real magic it provides is that it eliminates draws. You know, there is no other situation in football where you can go from losing to winning with one goal. That can mm -hmm. only happen with away goals. Like if you want magic, that's magic. You know, that's drama. You know, completely flipping the tie game with just one goal instead of having to get an equalizer in the second, right? It's it's more volatile. And that's gone now. That's you know, that might never be something you see again. That team goes from, you know, being knocked out of a competition to going through it with one goal. It's it's an incredible moment. I can think of so many. You know, probably some of the best moments I've had watching soccer is just, you know, the peak of drama. And I'm I'm very, very sad to see that done away with. I think that as we come to, as we draw our discussion to a close, this is the type of episode where we don't really have much to to provide in terms of like final insight or final direction. Yeah. Uh, frankly, I think that this is an interesting thing to talk about, and and it's again, I, once again, ironic but that we're coming off the back of one of probably the most magical days of football in the past year, in the past two years, time that has been full of suffering and full of uh, unfortunate events, a series of unfortunate events. Um, in which the magic might have been very, very needed, has been very needed to, to keep people going and to keep people, you know, with this sort of release from the everyday humdrum reality. And I think that the, the, the final thought that I basically have is, is simply that football will always change. We will always, as fans, have to learn to evolve ourselves and appreciate the, the new things that exist there for us to appreciate. I think that Atletico Madrid fans have had a lot of pride in their defensive solidity for many years. And maybe that isn't something that organically would be to a normal everyday average Joe who doesn't really watch a lot of soccer. Maybe they wouldn't really enjoy that. But yeah. as, as people, I think that there is certainly an argument for what Tiago has said. You know, Tiago is kind of pushing the narrative in an interesting way here with his comments. He also is the type of player that every time he has a pass that he could possibly makes make, he like tries to, you said this in a couple days ago, like he yeah. just tries to make it, literally as cool as possible and like if he can hit a nice pass he'll do it without looking and like with a sidewinder on a side volley because he yeah. is just that good it puts and, a little bit of sauce on it right this makes it yeah exciting yeah and so, i i love watching him he's one of my favorite players for that reason i wish i wish more people would do the same try and bring a bit more of the magic back so with that, uh, this has been maybe a little bit more somber of a conversation amidst, obviously, all this bubbling international tournament and right. games and all these different things. But, uh, you know, things to think about. I, I certainly will not be done watching soccer anytime soon. No. I find a lot of beauty in many different things, be it individual, be it collective. Um, but I think Tiago's comments are interesting. It'll be interesting to monitor what others similar to him 
are saying or feeling in in the coming years and to see whether there's a you know i think i think the 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 path of football is in large part cyclic and i think that you know when when suddenly the tens are all done away with perhaps in another generation they will all come back and just like there's all this focus on pragmatism right now maybe the effervescence will return at some point and maybe we'll go back to long balls and and having really really tall strikers that can dominate in the air because all the center backs simply know how to pass the ball but they're all five nine and they can't get any headers we might see you know football happen um But football, but football has that tendency where there's, you know, vintage in everyday life has value because people think it's cool to look like the nineties when it's the 2010s. And like, there are, there are moments in which I think we're going to get to with the evolution of football, where some will keep moving forward and without looking back, but others will start looking back for inspiration. And some might see the tens, the romantic nature of them and be inspired by that and look to bring it back and look to cultivate a system in which, you know, we'll think to ourselves, maybe Mezzodozo was born in the wrong generation, you know, and, and perhaps that'll bring a little bit of that vitality back. But it's hard to say with the way in which the modern world has shifted, the way in which soccer has become a vehicle for other things has become a more politicized than ever, more, you know, we have entire nation states that own clubs or sponsor clubs now instead of charitable organizations. And and it's a question as to, is this only going to keep getting worse? Is this going to turn back at some point? And what will we do as fans in response to it? And I suppose that that is left unknown and we will only uh, see what happens from here on out. Yeah. So with that... This has been fun, Will, believe it or not. I've actually quite enjoyed the conversation. Um, yeah. We've got some exciting things coming up. <laughs> uh, it's It's been good. I think, you know, like like you said, all, it'll be cyclical. Some of the stuff will come back. I, I, I'm kind of pessimistic. I think kind of the off-the-field side of the game is maybe too far gone at this point, like I said in the Super League episode. But yeah, I'm I'm sure I will see another cool number 10 someday. It just might not be for a few years. Well, we'll just have to wait. Till next time, William. Till next time.